Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Thursday, February 10th, 2022. I'm John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. And associate editor up. Christine, we didn't hear you. Say it again. Hi, John. How interesting. Zoom microphoning. We're having Zoom microphone Suppressing my female voice. Patriarchal Zoom. It's (laughs) awful. And associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Noah, you are back from your uh, participation as a citizen of your uh, town, county, township, state, county, uh, making your voice heard, not just on the commentary podcast, but in your community last night. Can you tell us a little about it? Uh, well, it was an experience. Um, <clears throat> this, you know, if anybody's ever had exposure to local government, it can be very, very heated over relatively low stakes issues. Um, so there, it's not a low stakes issue. We've spent most of the time talking about a new school building, and then they had a problem with the contract, and then they summarily canceled the contract. And it was about three hours of debate over this. And I just wanted to get in there with my four people who were there for masking just to deliver my anti-masking sermon, which I did. And in the end of this process, about three and a half hours into it, uh, the superintendent took us aside and said, we're having a, you know, we're going, we're going to, we're going to do it. We're going to allow the mask mandates to, to expire. So my presence or absence probably had nothing to do with that revelation. Nevertheless, it was important to be there. I thought to register my dissatisfaction with the status quo did so. Um, so the masking goes away. Social distancing doesn't go away. Masking doesn't go away on buses. So you still basically have to mask up your children if you ride public transportation. And all the you know, logistical struggles that is for young children with masks will continue in perpetuity. However, it's not going to happen in, in schools for educators, administrators, or children after March 7th in my state. It's going forward. I don't think there's any political cover to roll it back, although there were quite a few people there who were discomfited by this prospect, mostly older, uh, mostly people without young kids in the system um, who nevertheless uh, appreciate the current regime clearly. were frustrated by our speeches and that outcome, but they didn't speak on it, um, which perhaps suggests a changing of the national mood, the national environment in a local way. Nevertheless, there is progress, baby steps, but progress nonetheless. So this is February 10th. You're talking about a release from the mask regime on March. March 7th, a full month away. Yeah, it's 28 days. So um, that's pretty interesting if you think about it. Maybe it's not quite 27 days. I don't I do the math. I don't know. So this is the 10th and to the 28th is uh, 18 days. And then it's 25 days, whatever. Okay, so it's 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 almost four weeks. Um, and if you think about it, uh, this is an emergency measure and they have basically declared that the emergency is over, which is why you can demask. And generally speaking, emergency measures are ended when the emergency is over. It's not like, okay, we're going to do this. We're going to do it in four weeks because we're trying to give ourselves cover. We're trying to give ourselves cover from the people who won't like this change policy. We're trying to give ourselves cover because we're going to try to act serious and sober about doing this, and if you actually think about it, it's a, it's a it's a logistical outrage. It is a it is a sort of um, moral outrage. Emergencies end when they end. It's like 
It's like, no, no, you know what we're going to do? We're going to continue to ration water. It's three months after the hurricane, and the water is now flowing in the pipes, but we're still going to ration it for another four weeks just to make sure, just to be clear. Again, the Omicron surge ending is a matter of math. It is not a matter. This is a math matter. We saw it spike to levels that we've never seen before in number of cases. And now the caseload is down in most of these places, over 90%. If you're going to end the mask mandate, you end the mask mandate five seconds after you say, maybe we should end the mask mandate. This is not a question. This is, this is, we have now ended up in a situation of permanent emergency, even if we're now going to lift this because we are creating the logistical notion that masks are the base and that getting off masks is the exception. Actually, this is actually asked about that, uh, why oh. it's not like flipping a switch, why it would take five weeks when masking was, to be fair, masking didn't happen overnight. A, a convention around it had to develop. And, you know, there's this back and forth over Fauci saying, you know, masks are good, masks are bad. So it didn't happen overnight. But when they implemented the mask mandate, that was it. So why does it take five weeks to un- unwind? Well, there are logistical considerations, mostly for young children who are at risk or vulnerable and who need special circumstances and conditions, and we have to work that out. It's going to take five weeks to do that. I don't know how um, or what the conditions in place were for these children at risk, vulnerable children in the pre-COVID era, what we did for them. I don't I'm not familiar with that either. But anyway, that was the. That was the excuse that was given. But this is why I think, Noah, you shouldn't downplay the importance of speaking out, even if they claim they already had a resolution ready to go that agreed with what you were saying, because over the next few weeks, they're going to get blowback, not in public. It's not going to be the people like you who are willing to go down, sit through the, you know, under the buzzing fluorescent lights on the linoleum floor for four hours and talk. It's the it's the individual parents who are going to harass the principals. It's people who are going to send emails and, and, and you know, kind of harass the public health uh Township, the township, the leaders in your township who are, who are the public health folks. I've seen this happen in D.C. And that pressure has to be countered. And the fact that you're on the record saying that allows them some cover to say, well, actually, we have parents who showed up at this meeting and said that they were opposed yeah. to this. That's good. <laughs> Environmentally, it was like March 2020. It was there were the you know, the seats were six feet apart in the audience. There were double maskers. The fir- very first thing I did was take the seat and pick it up and move it right in the middle of the aisle <laughs> so I could sit next to my friend who I came with. Um, and I was the only person who, who did that. Okay. I, I thought everybody would do that because it's really stupid to do okay. that. So the circumstances are that uh, people like us say, lift the mask mandate now, lift it, lift it, lift it. Right. Oh, everything, and the- everything. No, social distancing. The, yeah, oh, I, I say right. everything. Social no. distancing, quarantine protocols, yeah. all of it got to go yes. yesterday. Okay. Okay. Then there are the people who are like, yeah, we're on the, we're on the downward slope toward getting to doing that. There is no distinction between being on the downward slope and lis- lifting the mask mandate, unless you have an argument, which no one is making that lifting the mask mandate is going to cause a new spike in cases, hospitalizations, and death. What we have here is the idea that the country has to, people in the country who are, who are mask hawks have to be allowed to get comfortable with the fact that this is transitioning to a different era. That is not exactly what's being said, but it is the implication. So let me give you an example. Again, we're, we always focus on where we live. So I'm going to give you an example from 
New York City. So the mask mandate is gone as of today. It is an indoor mask mandate on businesses. It's an indoor mask mandate on businesses. So individual businesses can say, we still want you to mask and you can decide to shop there or not shop there, or do whatever you want to do if, you, if that's the case. Mass transit will still have masking. So let, let, let's follow the logic here of mass transit masking and the indoor mask mandate. Why is it okay for people to go into stores without masks, but not to go on a subway train without masks or on a subway platform without masks? There is no reason. It is just that the MTA and the state officials have the ability to govern this almost you know, unilaterally without any pushback from individual proprietors of things. If you're going to lift the mask mandate on, in, on indoor businesses, you lift it in schools and you lift it on the subway. There's no difference in degree from the idea of transmissibility in do, indoors in any of these places. So you are creating a logistical night. I'm not logistical, a logical nightmare here. Okay. We're going to lift it over here where, and, but we're not lifting it over here. We're not lifting it over here. Uh, why? Because we don't want to. They we're only, not ready yet. We're not emotionally ready yet to do that. They don't feel right. Even Fauci is now talking about how people feel, don't do or don't feel safe. I will say there's only one argument that could persuade me for, for dragging out the mask mandate like four or six weeks. And that's to say, if you know this would give parents who would drag their heels in vaccinating their kids who are eligible for vaccination the time to get the, at least one, hopefully two shots, and school systems that are really dealing with you know very strong teachers unions uh, and and really scared parents, which my school system still is, might see that as a kind of okay, well they're you know this is the last gasp for trying to go get your kid vaccinated. If you haven't done that yet, then the risk is actually going to be entirely on you're taking it on yourself and your own family. Everyone else is going to move on. That's that's. I still think that's ridiculous because all these people have had plenty of time to get their kids yeah. vaccinated. But that's one potentially kind of compromised position on the, yeah, on but the timing. Yeah, but I think you, it's disingenuous. Like no, I completely said. agree. I'm right. just saying so, that's you so. Know, so you're just you're just coddling the, the people who want. They're this not even coddling. It's bullshit. It. Those people are not going to vaccinate their children. I don't right. think they're coddling anyone. I think that to to suddenly declare the end of these policies is to, in some sense, admit that they've already gone on too long, which means that they don't know what they were doing. To approach it with this sort of phased out idea means we still know what we're doing. And judging by our data, it looks like we'll be able to continue to, to ease things up while keeping in control, while, while still having a handle on the situation. Well, and that that's exactly right. I think that's the heart of it, because many of the places that have already lifted these mandates have higher case counts now than when they had the mandates in, in place you know, before. So that's absolutely right. I mean, I, I'm 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 tired of talking about this. It's exhausting to talk about it. The simple the fact that the worm has turned or the message has changed and that we are obviously on our way to a removal of mask mandates in the United States. Uh, the fact that we are going to have to let this play out in some fashion because of what Abe is talking about, because of what we're all talking about, and because of the way the media cover this. Um, I think uh, the idea that uh, that these, like, for, if they just did it, 
then 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 peace could be sought somehow. I know there are a lot of people who are, you know, we're going to it's like, okay, it's over with. Like even Liana Wen, the person that a lot of us have the most one of the you know largest degree of contempt for for her behavior during the pandemic, who is now becoming, okay, we need to lift the restrictions. I'd be willing to say, okay, she changed her mind. She will for whatever reason, but thank God it happened, at least because it happened, she's now changed her mind and we can move forward. I'm not going to feel that way in four weeks when Joe Biden says, okay, it's time for the country to lift the mask mandate. I'm going to Well, when's feel... very explicit contention in her Washington Post piece is we need to lift everything now so we can reimpose it later. That's very, what she says very clearly and plainly, because my profession needs the credibility necessary to impose these restrictions on you if they're necessary somewhere down the line. I mean, uh, let, let's, let's uh, play a thought experiment. Let's say Liana Wen's dystopian formula happens. Lift the mass mandates, and then in June there's a new variant, and uh, Biden comes out and says there should be an, another. You know, everyone should go masking again or whatever. Local, okay. So I my presumption is uh, that there will be compliance with that in the places where there was compliance before. And there will be an absolute refusal to do it everywhere that things have been otherwise. And so what you'll have is a much degraded masking. I'm not sure they'll be compliant. Look, in, I think there won't be necessarily. I know a lot of parents, liberal parents who were like doing the double masking before, you know, not going anywhere, or doing anything before vaccination. And these even those folks are sick of it. They're sick of the fact that they did everything right and they're still being told to wear masks. I'm not sure the compliance would be that great. In fact, I think there would I, be I know more I think it'll resistance. be degraded. I think it'll be degraded. The whole point is whatever Liana Wynn thinks or whatever they think. And maybe this is one reason to keep it for as long as you can keep it, because once it's gone, it is never coming back. I mean, it is never coming back in the way that it needs to come back if it were to come back, which is it doesn't make sense for it to be partial, right? That's the whole point about how we got into this in the first place. These mitigation measures have to be followed by everybody or they don't have the proper you know, blanket effect uh, of, of stopping the spread or doing whatever it is they were supposed to do um, if, you know, only half of people do it, unless you need it as a talisman and you think you're going to protect yourself by wearing a mask and then you can do it forever. I was struck. I, I, I again, I don't want to like, you know, uh, ride hobby horses, but I was struck by um, a uh, a tweet by one of our least favorite people uh, in Twitterdom, uh, Taylor Lawrence, the New York Times uh, social media reporter who is now going to the Washington Post. Taylor Lawrence is somewhere in her mid to late 30s. OK, and and she tweeted yesterday, quote, as someone who is high risk myself, I sincerely hope the media can stop minimizing mass death and disability among the most vulnerable. By the way, you can hear the mean girl voice there, right? It's like, you know. Why are you still obsessed with me? I sincerely hope the media can stop minimizing mass death and disability among the most vulnerable. Okay, why, why am I making fun of this and talking about this? It's two years. Taylor Lorenz is high risk. She can stay inside her apartment until she feels safe. 50 million kids don't have to stay in masks and, and, and sit outside eating in the cold and, you know, be six feet apart and not be allowed to socialize and talk at meals and stuff like that. So that Taylor Lawrence, who can mitigate her own goddamn disability, 
should be protected from them. First of all, there's no protection. She doesn't need protection from them. They're not going to give it to her. And second of all, who the hell does she think she is? She's a 38-year-old person. If she's high risk, she can stay inside her apartment. That's what people do if they have if they're immunocompromised. They don't require the planet Earth to revolve around them. And this is where we are going. At least people used to maintain the fiction that they were doing this for old people. Well, now old people are like 90 to 95% vaccinated. So now my kids have got to be masked so that Taylor Lawrence can go wander around, you know, you know, taking, you know, studying TikTok students and being horrible on Twitter. You know, uh, that is not what this is about. And you know what? Get it or don't get it. High risk or don't be high risk. Eventually, as I think the polls are showing, almost everybody in America now thinks that you're going to get COVID, whether you want to or not, and that uh, if you're vaxxed and boosted, as I was, and I got COVID, and by the way, I'm high risk, okay? I'm 60 years old, I'm overweight, and I have diabetes. Guess what? Nothing. It had no effect on me whatsoever. Okay, I'm not a smoker. I don't know, but I have I have comorbidities. I got COVID, and because of the protections afforded me by the vaccines and the booster, I was totally fine. And Taylor Lawrence might be the same. If she's high risk, I'm high risk. She can go to hell, and everybody who thinks like her can go to hell. And that is where we are now. Because if we're going to spend four weeks with my kids still in masks in schools in order to comfort Taylor Lawrence, yeah, there is going to be a reckoning. Well, if we that... just dropped it now, and I know most people who are listening to me, their kids aren't in masks in schools or whatever. But remember, I live in New York City. Uh, that's the most populous city in the country. There are a million kids in New York City public schools, a million kids. People like Lawrence are piggybacking off of the fact that most of the country isn't experiencing a pandemic. She makes her type. I'm putting words in her mouth and I apologize because it's not her argument, but her argument is. Why should you I'm, apologize? She puts words in everybody else's mouth enough. and has as a journalist forever. So go fair ahead. enough. But the argument that she's explicitly making is I'm vulnerable. Therefore, society should cater to my vulnerability. At the same time, the cast of which she is a part also makes the argument that what is your problem? Everything's open. You can do whatever you want. What, there's very little distinction between America at circa 2022 and December 2019. And you're just really hung up about, I don't know what, you just have to wear a mask when you get on the subway system. So what, you entitled baby, get over it. It's a pandemic. These two arguments somehow coexist. But that's but that's important. That's an important point, because I think what they're doing, and she's definitely doing this, is they want the new normal to cater to the most vulnerable in perpetuity. And that is not how our society can function. We simply can't function that way. I mean, I have a friend who's immunocompromised I, I for a long time, and I have to do a lot of things in order to safely hang out with her because of you know her various issues. That's fine. I, I'm willing to do that. Many, many Americans live with conditions that require them to accommodate either their own uh, mobility and their own issues and and or family and loved ones. So that's actually fine. And society should do everything. Look, we have ramps to get in, you know, the ADA accommodations. These things are things we come to an agreement. Well, that's on. another thing. Now that there are yeah. certain groups that are filing very um, 
is suspiciously worded ADA suits. Exactly. So that they want to they want to turn the new normal into a kind of hyper safetyism that that we know to already have gone too far before COVID. They want to extend that in perpetuity, make it a make it a regime that is constantly on alert, and that would mean masking every winter for all kids all the time. I mean, it. it we have yeah, to resist there, that. There are there are articles now advocating for masking after COVID, whatever after COVID means, um, just as a sort of best practices uh, during germ season. Um, that is that is a sick society. And it will happen. I mean, there are, you know, I would say 10 to 15 percent of the population is going to do that. And that's that's, that's fine, fine if it's optional. Yeah, if it's optional, I have no problem with them walking around. It's if actually they not slap fine. <laughs> it's it's I mean, really yeah, not. Well, it's well, fine, but it is, but it's, know, but it's no, but you don't have to walk mentally ill. Yeah. No, but right. they are neurotic and hypochondriacal, and it's fine as long as they don't impose it on everybody else. Um, and I think where we find ourselves as we have this conversation over and over and over again is this question of what this is a proxy for. And I'm, that's one of the reasons that I'm sort of stuck on Taylor Lawrence, because I'm not entirely sure what this is. If you want to say that this is a proxy for a certain type of type of collectivist idea that, you know, we are all living in a society responsible for each other. It takes a village to raise a child. It takes a society to keep a pandemic from becoming, you know, from killing ten, tens of we all are in this together, whether we want to or not. You know, the virus knows no different distinctions between people and all of that. And this is a model of how we should behave in general with our money. We should pool our money and then distribute it more uh, equitably and more in a more egalitarian fashion. We should we should be living a more collectivist life in general. And therefore, the masking is kind of like a, a symbol of that or a synecdoche of that or something like that, right? There's that There's that idea that this is a proxy for. And then there is a proxy for Taylor Lawrenceism, which looks like that, but is actually like, you know, I don't like it when people chew gum. Stop chewing gum. It's disgusting. What's the matter with you chewing gum? It's a filthy habit and you should stop doing it. You know why? Because it makes me sick when I'm walking down the block and I'm seeing you chewing your gum and cracking your gum. And that is a more powerful impulse in, in in a certain type of psychological makeup than the we need collectivism, which is a sort of philosophical political idea. It is, I want to control your behavior. Right. Well, but that because but, you but, make me sick. Well, and this is the thing. I'm sorry to interrupt, but the but the difference, and I think what you're sensing in the Taylor Lawrence type tone is a is a she's not many of them don't say it explicitly, but they're assuming that the state or some sort of entity that has been given power will enforce that that feeling of theirs. Collectivism can have a kind of let's all free cycle and pool our resources kind of, you know, let's live in co-housing communities. Isn't this great? That's all voluntary. And you can try to persuade others to join that cause, but that's a voluntary cause. What I think I'm, we're seeing more of now in the last gasp of all these uh, regime changes with, with the masking and the social distancing and whatnot and the quarantine stuff is that people still want the state to enforce it. And people like Taylor Lawrence are happy to do, say that now because the state's on her side right now. Right. I'm pretty I assume she's yeah. probably on the liberal side of the aisle so that they want enforcers. And I think that's the distinction between the argument of, oh, we should 
our society should be structured this way versus I don't like your mask or I don't like you taking your mask off and I want someone to fine you for that. Look, the, in the Democrats in the House are having this battle right now because the Ethics Committee, the Democrats are in charge of this. They have all these fines if you don't wear a mask. And, you know, this is a this is a, a group of people. Nancy Pelosi is their is their leader. She constantly goes to places and violates mask mandates. And yet they're fining individuals who show up on the House floor without them. And the Democrats are sick themselves of having to enforce these mask mandates. So you see here that it's the enforcement and who's in charge. And I think the Taylor Lawrence of the world assume that her side will always be in charge of enforcing this stuff. You know, one of the reasons that people on the right got so enraged by the nanny state idea and talked about the nanny state a lot, like 15 years ago, and uh, it, this was sort of a hyper-focused on Michael Bloomberg, of course, who was nominally a Republican, but who kept sort of trying to pass these draconian behavioral control laws and the one and you know as a nanny stater and the the one that 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 struck people or hit people most hard was this idea that you shouldn't be allowed to buy a big gulp a giant soda because soda is empty calories and it's, it contributes to obesity and and you shouldn't you know we should tax it or not allow those cups so that people shouldn't have it because because of, you know, and then you could, you have, there are two different arguments. One is this is a free country it is no business of the mayors, how large the cup that people buy their soda in is. And they can also go to a store and buy a 64 ounce bottle of soda and drink it the same way they could have a, a, a big gulp cup. Right. Uh, but he's like, okay, this is about obesity and we want to prevent obesity. Obviously, obesity has this weird regressive effect because there are far more poor obese people than rich. And, they, you know, food is cheap, but it's very caloric and they get these big gulps and we should help them by making it difficult for them to make bad choices. But really, and this is why this had such an effect on people, even though they didn't know it. But really, what was Michael Bloomberg saying? He was saying, it's gross, you with your giant cup. Why are you drinking all of that sugar water for? That's disgusting. You need to look like me. I have $60 billion and I don't have an ounce of fat on my body. Be like me. Have your chef bring you a lettuce leaf and a perfectly chilled glass of water. Be like me. Well, Eric like Adams is following in his footsteps, right? <laughs> he needs to turn all, all New Yorkers into vegans. Who I mean, to be, fair, to be fair to Eric Adams, he's like, he's like applying... Roman Catholic doctrine to the New York City public. There's one day that there's going to be Friday. It's like it's like meatless Fridays at a at a parochial school. So there's going to be one day in which there are like there's a, the funny thing about him is it was going to be vegan Fridays. And then I was listening to some panel discussion in which there's not enough protein on that plate. Oh, wait, by way, what, what by the way, what is vegan Friday, by the way, if I could just tell you what it is in a lot of schools. Speaking of bodega food, it's like a burrito. It's like a bean burrito that you microwave. I'm sure that is lovely, really healthy. Anyway, but doesn't that control? Yeah. But isn't there already meatless Mondays? Blue, uh, De Blasio implemented meatless Mondays along with many other cities. Well, I don't know. I don't know if he's got me. It's 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 uh, there's a vegan meal on Friday yes, because they hate meat. Remember how Democrats, yeah, know. Are, you know, the, the no, AOC Eric thing. Adams They're not coming for your hamburgers. That. They are coming for you. They've been coming for your hamburgers. I know. I know. More but, gaslighting. But, but here's my my sense. The, the 
the, the, just to finish this stupid point about the big gulp, which I acknowledge because once again, we're doing this very early and I'm being stupid, but my point is that there is an aesthetic loathing on the part of certain types of people for the ordinary behavior of common folk. And Michael Bloomberg thought it was disgusting that you drank a 44 ounce thing of soda. Well, guess what? $60 billion guy who wastes a billion dollars getting five electoral votes from American Samoa. Maybe people buy a big gulp because it costs 25 cents more than the 20 ounce soda that you could get. And therefore it's a value and you can keep it all day and you can therefore save a dollar when you get the big gulp. So you don't have to buy two sodas and spend $4 as opposed to buying one big soda and spending two seventy-five. Maybe that's what people of limited means do to maximize their money. Maybe they eat hamburger helper because it means that they buy less hamburger and have more filler so they can feed a family of five for $6 instead of for 12. This, these are the sorts of considerations that people who nominally like, um, uh, who is the, is it, who is the character in Dickens who, you know, so loves the poor that she does everything for the poor and her own children starve? Is it Mrs. Jellyby? Yeah. Mrs. Jellyby, right. So, so people who care about the poor so much that they actually want to interfere with their ability to conduct their daily lives as inexpensively as possible in, in, in for their own good. John, I don't think this is a stupid point at all, because I think, honestly, if you look at almost all sort of policy of the left, domestic policy, certainly health policy, environmental policy, you'll see these things supported by two groups and there's overlap. And one is, for lack of a better word, totalitarians who want to control other people. And then there are the do-gooders who sort of grease the wheels for the totalitarians who say, look, this is nice. We want to help you. We don't want people dying of these things. We don't want to ruin the planet. And they're sort of in it for a different gain. They, they, they actually, they're, they're maybe a little low information, whatever, but they, they, they want these things because they actually think some good is being done. And they, they provide this sort of massive support to the people who are just want to control other people. And we see it over and over again. Uh, speaking of totalitarians and Americans and the intersection between the two, let me talk to you guys about the Call Me Back podcast with Dan Senor and his blockbuster show this week with Eric Schwartzel of the Wall Street Journal. Uh, Dan and Eric are talking about Eric's book, uh, Red Carpet, uh, which is about uh, the Chinese... Um, you know, the, the interplay between uh, Hollywood and China and the way in which China has been using its uh, economic power to um, force Hollywood to censor its own material in order to have access to the Chinese market. It is a fantastic conversation on one of the best, best podcasts you'll ever hear. Call me back. It was the post-corona podcast. If you subscribe to it from hearing me before, it should be there in your feed. If not, just search for Call Me Back and Dancing or wherever you get your fine podcasts. I just want to read. This is just an interesting little detail. Um, uh, so the Chinese market, you may have heard. So the Ch China's punishing Disney for various reasons, uh, even though Disney opened Euro Disney. And it's, it's almost like because Disney was the most successful company, it is the most successful film company. 
um, uh, China wants to make an example of it and control it to such an extent and limit its ability to make money in the Chinese market to such an extent that it will do just about anything to get back into China's good graces. Um, uh, that's part of the story, the through line of the of the book. Um, but here's why China can do it. I'm looking at Box Office Mojo, and Box Office Mojo has Chinese box office for 2021. Um, every major release until Godzilla versus Kong, uh, uh, and oh, excuse me, F9 and Godzilla versus Kong. Every major release is a Chinese movie. Okay, uh, not the Eternals, not this, not that. It, they won't let the Eternals into China because of its director's uh, one comment in 2013 or 2010 about how she did, doesn't want to live in a country that lies. Um, so the f- number one box office movie in China in, uh, in uh, um, 2020 uh, 2021 is called the Battle at Lake Chunjin, which is a, a, a battle in the, I believe, the Korean War. And this movie at the domestic Chinese box office made $899 million. $899 million. Right now, Spider-Man No Way Home, uh, which is the only success really blockbuster of the pandemic period, um, has made about $760 million in the United States. It is Notice it is not on re- it's not on release in China. Second movie made eight hundred twenty one million dollars. It's called Hi Mom. And the third, Detective Chinatown Three, made six hundred eighty five million dollars. China doesn't need the United States anymore to provide its people with an, uh, entertainment that they want to see. The Chinese government knows that it's a form, and they are they are going to lever this to try to control American culture into doing. It's bidding. That is the subject of this conversation with Eric Schwartzel on Dan Senor's Call Me Back podcast. Go listen to it. Be horrified. Be enlightened. And uh, and and finish up with an understanding of just the kind of multi-layered threat that we face from from China. And speaking of China, Abe, of course, right now in Beijing, we have the Winter Olympics going on. But something interesting is happening. What is what what interesting is happening? Well, as best I can tell, compared to sort of a lifetime of living through Olympic seasons, I'm not a fan from the start. I'll just get that out. Um, No one really cares about the Olympics this time around. I mean, you see the headlines, you see the stories, you see about the upsets and the tragedies. But there used to be this sort of intrusive coverage that you couldn't escape. Um, And I don't see that happening anymore. And I'm trying to sort of figure out why. I mean, there are a number of reasons. I think some of them are sort of very practical in that media is designed differently now. So you can sort of tailor, uh, you know, your own uh, content in this. I mean, you can you can sort of go anywhere you want and avoid things you don't want to see. It's not you're not sort of held hostage in the way you were uh, in past Olympics. But I think it, it it's, uh, runs a little deeper than that. I think that um, this year, even sort of liberals and, and, and the left have kind of, uh, you know, picked up on the human rights issues in China. And, uh, you know, there are people who have for a long time been saying that the Olympics are a terrible thing because they elevate bad and evil regimes. And, and you know, we, we, we shouldn't sort of participate or at least 
not fully, um, but I think there's that that sense is more pervasive because also you have the the echoes of we're, we're still in the COVID aftermath, not even the aftermath, and there's all of those associations with China. I think there's a lot of bad sort of feeling about the, you, if you you know the Simone Biles sort of breakdown kind of left a left everyone with this sort of weird what what's going on with these like young athletes um, uh, uh, feeling, and it, I think part of the issue also is that. The Olympics used to be a kind of proxy uh, for politics and international relations, and especially, you know, like if you take something like the the U.S.-Russia hockey game, U.S.-Soviet Union hockey game, which sort of this, it seemed that the stakes were so much higher than, than a sort of mere game. And I think the sort of the Olympics now that we pay attention to as spectators are the actual politics itself. Like that's become the sort of spectator sport. <laughs> And the Olympics kind of kind of pale, you know, and I also wonder just one more point about this, like we've been reading for a few years now, ooh, the rise of nationalism, nationalism everywhere, wherever you look, there's nationalism coming back. You would think that in a world where with this sort of toxic nationalism on the rise everywhere, that the Olympics would be a much bigger deal, right? Because this is this is where nations compete against each other to, to show who's boss and to show their progress. And you don't I'm not seeing that. Um, well, in the American context, when they talk about nationalism, they mean you. And when they talk about sure. nationalism, they mean everybody, their neighbors that they hate. Yeah, yeah. But, <laughs> but, but, but there's been discussion about sort of the rise of nationalism around the globe, you know, like like we're, we're heading back to this. I think it's probably this very similar when you talk about, you know, nationalistic sentiments in Eastern Europe, for example, which the nationalists right in America really like. It's all very insular and about, you know, hurting, subjugating, right. discrediting but, your domestic enemies. I can't right, speak but, in the but, Chinese context, but I can't right. imagine that's all that different either. Right. Well, I, look, it's a very interesting phenomenon. So we have the Olympics now getting about 10 million people watching a night. And that's not just on NBC. That's across NBC, USA or whatever, and Peacock, which is a streaming service. These are terrible numbers. Still winning. I mean, the, these are still winning, though. I mean, still winning primetime coverage. Most a, watch no, event it, on the it, network, it on network it television. That doesn't mean anything. NBC paid $8 billion or something for the Olympics. Like if they had three times the audience, they're, they're, you know, they're going to have to make goods on ads because they had, the audience is not large enough. This is, they have, they have sealed up the Olympics for like 10 years. They paid an ungodly amount of money and um, people are losing interest. Now I think there are lots of historical reasons. One of which was the end of amateur status. I think there was always this weird thing where you had the, the idea that people who are competing in the Olympics, even if it was a fiction or half half fiction, were competing for the love of the sport and were actually denying themselves commercial opportunities because what they wanted to do was win a medal for themselves and for their country. It was prestigious. It was beyond money. It was something sort of grand and noble. And you might be able to get an endorsement after, but maybe not. It's not, it wasn't a thousand percent clear, but that you were doing this for a higher purpose. That is entirely gone, uh, at least in the American context. Nobody thinks about athletes that way anymore. Nobody thinks of them as being, you know, representatives of a kind of spirit of, uh, you know, a national spirit and a desire to do something great for greatness's sake alone. So that the end of amateurism had that effect. But I do think that, uh, you know, 50 years after Munich, 
um, you know, time and again, the Olympics have been used as a propaganda tool by totalitarians. China's had three or four Olympics. Remember, we had the Olympic Putin's Olympics in Sochi, I think, in 2012. Um, 14. 14. I'm sorry. And and uh, oh, that's right. And, you know, uh, implicated in the, the invasion uh, you know, of Ukraine. In the invasion of Ukraine. Right. Um, that we have a circumstance in which this leaves a bad taste in people's mouths. There's something about the Olympics that now is not the glowing positive that it used to be. People care less about the winter Olympics in America than they do about the summer Olympics in general. Um, you know, it's not, we, we, we dominate in the summer Olympics. We are less dominating in the winter Olympics, but um, I, I think that, uh, yeah, the China and particularly not only Wuhan and the virus, but there is extreme discomfort with the, this idea that, you know, look, we're all one planet. Isn't this wonderful? Imagine there's no heaven. Imagine there's no countries. <clears throat> the Olympic spirit transcends national boundaries and all of that. And we're dealing with a nationalist, the rise of a nationalist power and the uncomfortable parallels here to 1936 and Hitler's use of the Olympic Games in 1936 to try to make a larger case about his and the Aryan supremacy that was, uh, of course, famously um, and wonderfully interrupted by the fact that the star of the 1936 Olympic Games was a black American runner, Jesse Owens. But there's also so much ambivalence at home about saying all these things about China. I mean, we, we've seen this throughout the virus, obviously, with the whole lab leak hypothesis, all the all the stuff that was suppressed because, oh, that's that's you can't say that that's racist. That's racist. So here in in uh, at George Washington University, there was this little mini scandal when um, a rather well-known uh, artist um, who is, you know, the Chinese government absolutely loathes. I'm going to mispronounce his name, but it's it's uh, but Diu Chao, B-A-D-I-U-C-A-O, uh, Chinese artist, cartoonist. He he's made these amazing posters that say Beijing 2022 that show you know shows a snowboarder uh, on a on a surveillance camera. It shows a curler curling a, a COVID. That instead of the curling thing, it's a, it's a it's a COVID virus. Uh, amazing, and they were put up around uh, GW and the president of GW and his initial reaction after uh, Chinese students claimed that they were being unfairly targeted and discriminated against because these these protest posters were put up. He sided with the Chinese students initially until the backlash was large enough that he's like, oh, well, oopsie daisy. I mean, it was horrifying to hear. I mean, this is clearly an act of political speech. It's clearly covered. You know, students should be allowed to put this stuff up. Students on the left side of the aisle put up far worse with no, with no one claiming that they're being threatened. So the idea that the Chinese influence in our own country has grown to an extent uh, that, that we actually are kowtowing to these sorts of complaints that's disconcerting to people too. And the people in leadership positions and corporations in particular and in universities have to deal with this and they are doing their desperate most to avoid that. I just want to say, I think, you know, it, it's worth thinking about the, the, the Olympics, the unpopularity of the, of the Olympics in the context that we often go back to, which is it's sort of another revered institution that's lost its luster, right? Uh, deservedly. You know, it's like yet another thing where people are just not buying into it anymore. Right. Now, the, the idea, by the way, that this can't um, th this can't be reversed. I think it's worth pointing out that we saw this kind of revolt against uh, the NFL um, 
I think largely in part because the NFL kowtowed to Black Lives Matter last year and the ratings tanked for the NFL and there were all kinds of weird COVID problems and all of that. And people were thinking, okay, well, you know, all these institutions, everything's falling apart. No one wants to go to the movies. No one's here. We, as you say about the Olympics and the NFL is done. People are done with the NFL. And it's not true. Uh, in fact, the last, you know, sort of six weeks of the NFL season and the playoff games uh, were so fantastic that um, it's it's likely that the Supreme that the Supreme Court had Super Bowl, the Supreme Court uh, Super Bowl this weekend is going to have you know mammoth gigantic huge ratings because people fell in love with football again uh, after the 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 weirdness of 2020 and 2021 uh, and and uh, and I think that you know that is true of of, of any of these institutions as long as they get back to being what they were supposed to be. Or not big when they're not supposed to be. Now, the Olympics is a garbage thing. I'm sorry it ever existed. I'm sorry they exist in some fundamental way. They promulgate a theory, an idea about, about, the, about the world that's bad. Um, you know, this kind of, on the one hand, anti-nationalist, you know, transnationalism uh, that is fake and false and then is sort of adopted again by these bad international actors to kind of mo- to push forward their own uh their own totalitarian um, narratives. So it's bad, but, you know, I mean, I, I just think in general, the idea that, uh, that things uh, are become beyond repair and no one's going to be interested in them anymore. We have a, we have an example in the NFL that that is not necessarily the case. And that could be true of institutions from Congress to the public health services if they just stop being bad and start being good, I don't know how that happens. I don't know how, I don't know how it, how it, uh, how it uh, transforms itself, but it can, in the case of the NFL was just these fantastic young quarterbacks who seize the game and, and, you know, and are doing, you know, things that are fantastic to watch, you know, and, and the, and the last gasp of the great old quarterbacks, you know, Brady, Roethlisberger, Aaron Rodgers, all of that against these younger quarterbacks. I'm not even particularly a football fan, but you know, it's an interesting, exciting and vibrant thing to watch. And therefore, you know, there's a revivification of it. And, uh, but you know, hopefully, by the way, there's one last thing I want to say about the Olympics. They're stupid. I know I keep using the word stupid a lot, but I mean, so, you know, you have these dumb old winter sports and dumb new winter sports, right? The old dumb winter sports are things like the biathlon, which is where you, you know, you cross country ski and then you shoot skeet and the two together. And that's like an Olympic event. Like why? Okay. To 1900, that was impressive that you could, you know, it was cross country ski and then shoot at something, but you know, it's a hundred years later, but now they have these other dumb, dumb sports, which are like, and, and of course, curling, my, my favorite, the, you know, obsessive compulsive cleaning the ice, thing with the broom um but you know now you have these kind of like um stunty things you know a lot of these snowboarding half pie all of that which are on the one hand incredibly impressive right i mean people are doing weird things with their bodies but it's really like circus act. i mean it's not it's not athletics exactly it's like cirque du soleil and you know okay good let them get medals i don't know but it's not it's not like a sport really it's like i say it's like kind of um weird you know uh, yeah like 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 you should see it on a vegas stage you know and not 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 in some you know manufactured snow hall in 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 beijing
Well, can I, I add, as long as we're dumping on the Olympics, can I add one more yeah. terrible thing about it? In reality, it does support an extensive system of child abuse that would be tolerated absolutely nowhere in, in, in this country under any other circumstances. That is a very good point. And that goes to, that goes to, look, that's a, that's, that's a, there's an interesting conflict here about that. That's such a larger topic about, about, um, about the empowerment of sort of coaching uh, in the United States and what this has meant. Obviously in gymnastics, we know the, you know, all of the horror stories in gymnastics, but there's no way that it, you know, there's no way that it begins and ends with gymnastics. You give adults power over children in the way that people see power. We know this from team sports, you know, high school football in weird state, you know, in states where that's the most important thing or high school basketball or something like that. These kind of sadistic coaches that that do horrible, you know, psychologically tormenting things and physically tormenting things. To yeah, kids. I mean, they distort their bodies. It's it's just you know, it's yeah. appalling. Yeah. But on the other hand, you know, they're they're, uh, you know, people people love it obviously it's very complicated it's a complicated issue and we can't uh, solve it right now um so we will say goodbye for today and uh reconvene tomorrow for abe noah and christine i'm john von keep the candle burning